Hi everyone, Anthony here. As this episode goes live, I'm between books, as it were. Uh, The Organised Writer is out now, and it's a book you've heard me mention on the show before. It's the first productivity guide, especially for writers, by a writer, i.e. me. It's designed to help you take control of your schedule and calendar, get more written every day, organise your files and working space better, and lots more. It's out in most formats now. The US paperback is due next month for some unfathomable reason, because it's the same publisher, I don't know. But you can get the ebook and audiobook versions now in the US, and all formats are available everywhere else right now. Then there's the North American release of the Exforia Code, the first Brigitte Sharp cyber espionage thriller from Pegasus Books. That's coming out in hardback and ebook on October 6th. And to celebrate its launch, recent guest of the show, Greg Rucker, and I are doing a virtual bookstore event with Brookline Booksmith in Massachusetts on Monday, October 12th. Well, we won't be in Massachusetts. The bookstore is in Massachusetts. You know what I mean. The event is free, but you do have to register for it online, and you can do that at their website, brooklinebooksmith.com. All right, enough of the plugs. Now on with the show. Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the novelist Fonda Lee. Fonda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. So I write science fiction and fantasy. I am primarily a novelist, although I've also written some short fiction and some comics, but I'm most well known for an epic urban fantasy trilogy called The Greenbone Saga. It starts with uh, Jade City, which won the World Fantasy Award, the sequel Jade War came out last year, and the final volume comes out um, next year, and that is Jade Legacy. And it is a modern era fantasy novel set in a fictional Asia-inspired metropolis that I have on occasion called The Godfather with Magic and Kung Fu. So that is my most recent work, and I also have three science fiction novels as well under my belt. I mean, Godfather with Magic and Kung Fu is a hell of a elevator pitch, isn't it? <laughs> it, it's, it is quick and easy. If I, if I have to explain my work in a nutshell, I'm sure you can appreciate the, um, every conversation that begins with, oh, so you're a writer. What, what's your book about? And having to quickly yeah. come up with the 30 second explanation. Yeah. But you, so, um, I mean, I, I know that you started out in YA, but I know that you also had a day job. So c- can you just take us through how you you know, how you got your professional start? Yeah. So I am um, a career transition author. I had an entire other um, career in corporate strategy. I was a hobbyist writer ever since I was quite young. Um, My uh, teens and twenties were filled with just um, writing for myself, writing fan fiction. And I never really imagined that it would become a career for me because I didn't honestly think that writing was a real career. I wasn't really <laughs> exposed to any writers when I was growing up and never, um, I, I remember um, being told by my parents that I should by all means go into a job that had, uh, you know, a 
a real job, one that would pay the bills, et cetera. So um, I went to business school and I worked in uh, management consulting and corporate strategy. And I did that for several years. And at some point I got so busy because I had my full-time job. I was raising two children. I had no time to write at all. So I well fell off the writing bandwagon and had a um, epiphany that uh, it was a part of my life that was very necessary to me and that I missed a great deal. And I'd reached this point in my career where um, I had been in my role. I was a corporate strategy manager and I was trying to decide what to do next. And, uh, you know, all my coworkers were saying, well, you could go into this and you could go into that and, you know, become a general manager of this. And so the more I thought about it, the more I realized I didn't want to do any of those things. What I really <laughs> wanted to do was write. And I decided, you know, what the heck, I'm not getting younger. And this is something that's been a pipe dream of mine for a really long time. And I'm going to make some changes in my life and find a way to put writing back into it. So. I uh, finagled my way into reducing my work hours. Um, I basically convinced my manager that I needed more work-life balance. And, um, you know, I had, I had two children, so she was very accommodating. And I still feel slightly guilty because with that additional time that she thought I was going to spend with my children, I ended up taking writing classes and working on my first novel. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, uh, that's what I did was... Um, was slowly ease out of my corporate track job. I wrote um, one and a half uh, practice novels, I suppose you will. Well, uh, the first um, novel that I finished and sent out um, on query uh, took some, was out in the ether when I was, when I started working on the book that would become my debut, which was a young adult science fiction novel called zero boxer. And after that book deal happened, um, I started working on my next and I essentially fired myself and <laughs> quit my day job, but um, was hired back as a consultant so that I could um, work on a project by project basis. So I would take on a project for three to six months, work on that, and then deliberately not take on another project for a few months so that I could really uh, work on my novel. And so I was using, uh, my very well-paying, um, consulting work to fund the periods of time when I wasn't making any money because I was busy being a novelist. So, um, that is, that's something that took a few years to, to accomplish was transitioning into being um, a full-time writer. And I am a full-time writer now. Uh, and the, my only regret honestly is that I didn't do it earlier. Um, I think for a very long time, I didn't really um, take my own writing ambitions seriously. Um, and then when I find, but I am an all or nothing sort of person. So once I decided that's it, like I, I very much want to be a writer and this is what I should have been doing um, even earlier. It, it, it was, uh, it, it was very clear in my mind that I needed to, to get to that place eventually. So I mean, there's a lot there that I want to follow up on, actually. Uh, <laughs> you um, coming from corporate management and project management and stuff, do you think that helped you with juggling the day job and the writing and doing having that plan, as you say, to take on a job, uh, you know, a sort of freelance day job, as it were, for a while, and then deliberately not take one 
for several months after that so that you could spend that time writing? I think it helped in some ways and it hindered in others. So um, I am very grateful for it for a few large reasons. The first being um, financially. Sure. So, uh, you know, there is, there's most certainly a period of time that many writers can attest to when writing is essentially a full-time job that doesn't pay any money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I think we've all been there. Yes. <laughs> we've all been there. Right? So, um, that, that for me was key was knowing that I didn't have to, um, worry about my art, putting a roof over my head or paying for groceries. And uh, that that took a load off of that pressure. I, I think it's very detrimental for us as writers to feel like we have to create art in order to pay the bills and keep the lights on. Um, so that pressure at least was off. And the other thing that um, that it helped me do was see writing as a career and as a business. So. Um, at the end of the day, after you've written a novel, uh, you you have to almost emotionally detach, even though you've put your own heart and soul onto the page and you've lived and breathed this world and these characters. You also have to realize that your your novel is a product, and it's going to be you know agents are going to decide whether or not they can sell it, and your editor and publisher are deciding how to market it and how to position it, and um, you're now at the behest of sales and distribution. And so being able to, um, to come in with that sort that understanding, just, it, it was relatively easy for me as someone who came from a business background to, um, understand and appreciate that and to, to realize that, you know, rejection or poor sales or, you know, um, whatever, vagaries of of the publishing business that affect your art don't necessarily reflect on you as a writer but that that is an entire whole piece of the publishing equation um and that comes into play into your career and so those things really helped me um on the on the other side though um coming from this career in business to a creative one was a pretty dramatic shift in mindset because um, as someone who worked in the business world, it, I, I was accustomed to a very structured, relatively predictable career path. Mm-hmm. So being able to say, you know, I got an MBA and then I started working as a junior analyst and then a senior analyst and then a manager. And then, you know, I know after two years at this particular pay grade, I'm going to get a raise most likely. And depending on my performance, I'm going to be promoted. So there was a very clear path to, you know, how that career happens. And yes, you can move into different branches and so on, but for the most part, you can kind of see like what the next milestone is while as a creative career is yeah, not <laughs> trekking off into the woods with no map. <laughs> Almost, if someone were to say, "Well, what what do you think you're going to? What what is the range of advance that you could get on this novel? It is somewhere between zero and one million. And how long is it going to take for you to feel established as an author? Uh, somewhere between one and twenty years. <laughs> it's so, or, or possibly never, right? Yes. <laughs> or never, right? So there's there is just so much more. Um, unpredictability and luck and um, 
uh, this sense of you're you're only as good as your last work and what's the there's there is that sort of um anxiety that you don't have when you have a fairly structured um day job so uh that was something that i most definitely had to had had to adjust to i i think it, that's one of the things that and i'm sure i've talked about i can't remember off the top of my head but i'm sure i've talked about this with previous guests as well you you have to you learn very quickly whether you are cut out for sitting at home and you know making yourself right uh you know motivating yourself and not having other people when I mean, you have publishers set deadlines i suppose but you know what i mean not having project managers give you tasks and deadlines and flowcharts and spreadsheets and all that sort of thing and i think most people who become creative freelancers learn very quickly whether or not they are cut out for it and in my case, I mean, I, when I went freelance, I wasn't sure if I was cut out for it at all, but I realized in probably less than six months, not only was I cut out for it, but like you, I wish I'd done it sooner. And in fact, as soon as I'd done it, I then couldn't possibly, I couldn't even countenance the idea of going back to work in an office. And I had a decent creative job. I was the art director for uh, magazines. I worked in publishing. So it was a good job that I enjoyed. But after I had been freelance for just a few months, I realized, oh, I never want to go back. I, you know, this is, even though it is chaotic and it is uncertain, you're absolutely right. And there is that anxiety. Uh, I think there's a certain mindset that just, I mean, not, maybe not everybody thrives, but certainly adapts to it and goes, yeah, okay, I can live with this. And it's worth the anxiety for the creative fulfillment that I get out of it. I completely agree. I can relate a lot to that sentiment because when I finally pulled the plug and left the business world and became a full-time writer, I was worried that I would miss the office and in particular social interaction and being with coworkers. Um, but what surprised me, pleasantly surprised me was that I didn't at all. I, had, I didn't miss it at all. And I think part of the reason is because in many ways, I feel like I have more social interaction now as a writer than I did in my day job, because there is this whole other side to being an author that involves doing events and speaking and teaching and meeting readers and having this community of other creatives and going to conferences. And, but, but it's kind of more, um, on my own terms. So I can decide, do I want to go to this conference or not? Or, you know, I'm not going to go to anything for three months because I really need to finish this novel draft. So it does feel like there's a, you have much more control of your own workflow, but you also need a lot of internal motivation because um, it is always tempting to not write. At any given time, oh, there yes. is always, <laughs> always something easier to do than write. So if you're sitting at home, be like, well, I could turn on Netflix or I could work on this chapter that I've been struggling with for a week. And I, I think that requires a certain sort of personality um, and I, I do feel like most of my willpower goes towards that. Uh, but um, like you said, there, there's the rewards of it are so great that I, you know, I can't imagine ever not doing it. I, I'm always reminded of Michael Awake's wonderful Twitter joke, which was a uh, business idea, a cleaning service staffed entirely by writers on deadline. <laughs> 
and it's and it's so funny because it is literally so true um <laughs> I mean, okay, so this is, I'm going to jump ahead. I say jump ahead. This is something that I normally kind of build up to later uh, in each episode, but because we have kind of almost gone there a little, let's talk a little bit more about that motivation and what, how do you structure your day? Because again, coming from a corporate world, you will have been used to having a relatively structured day. I mean, at any time, somebody could land something on your desk that, you know, a fire needs putting out or whatever. But generally the day is fairly structured. And I personally, as a result, I have a very structured work day uh, as a consequence of that. I find that that really works for me. And I often uh, suggest it to other people who might be struggling to sort of motivate themselves during the day. So how do you structure yours? What's a typical day like for you? So um, I have determined my optimal day largely by trial and error. And as we all do, been, yeah. <laughs> as we all do. And it's also been influenced by external forces. So um, normally, uh, my kids head off to school, and that's when I start working. Um, that has uh, with my kids out of school and with um, COVID and them being remote schooled for the foreseeable future, uh, that has thrown a big wrench into the in, into the schedule. But um, I have I've learned that uh, I am not a morning writer. So I have many friends who swear by getting up at 5 a.m. and starting to work. And I've learned that I am not that person. So normally, um, I am most productive in the middle of the day through to the afternoon. So I will usually get up, take my time having breakfast, have my tea, do sort of an hour or so of warming my brain up. Um, and that might be answering emails, um, you know, booking travel or uh, whatever sort of business administration author type stuff um, is sitting on my desk. So I'll get that out of the way. And then I usually start writing in earnest about 9.30 or 10. And then um, I'll, and depending on what I'm doing, um, I'll set certain targets. So if I'm fresh drafting something, I will often give myself a word count goal or have uh, sort of a midterm goal. So if uh, oftentimes I break down the work that I'm doing into definable chunks and I'll say, okay, well, I know this book is due at this time or this date. So I'm work backwards and I need to get a, this, it to my editor at this time. And so I've got to get a second draft by this time and a first draft by this time. Okay. So if the first draft needs to be done by Christmas, then I'm going to need to do this many words per day, roughly in order to, to get there. So, um, I'll have, and then I'll break that down further and be like, okay, this week on Monday morning, I'll wake up and say, okay, this week I am going to try and get these two chapters done. And then I've got, you know, a class to teach on Friday and then I'll try and do a bit of research on, you know, this. So I'll, I'll sort of set myself some midterm goals, but, um, if I'm drafting and, and, um, and sitting down at my computer to write, I'll do that until mid to late afternoon. Um, and then, and I'll, I'll sort of, um, build in breaks. I've, I've tried to, uh, set myself, um, times where I'll be like, okay, I'm going to write for an hour and then give myself 10 minutes off and then write for another hour and give myself 10 minutes off. Um, but, uh, at any given time, like some days it, it works and I'm just on a roll and other days 
I look up at 2 p.m. and go, how is it that I have only managed <laughs> to get one page done? Like, what is going on? So, it, you know, I, I'm, I make it sound like I have this great plan and it works flawlessly. It most definitely does not. But usually I, I work until mid-afternoon and then under normal circumstances, that's when my kids would come home. Um, under other circumstances, it might be when I uh, log off and I start working on, you know, dinner or other administrative stuff or answer whatever emails that came back that I was waiting for earlier in the day. Um, and, uh, and, and then I'll sometimes, um, in the evening, I'll kind of, I'll touch it again if I've got the energy to do that or read or whatever else I need. To oh, do. you actually will come back and, oh, wow. See, I, I can't do that. Once I get out of the sort of drafting mindset, you know, once I've finished with my words for the day, as it were. Right. Uh, Cause I have tried in the past. I just quickly, I can't do it. My mind, once I've put that aside and, you know, gone online and social media or whatever, or sat down and watched a TV show, yeah. I can't then go back and, and start drafting. My mind's just not in the right place. Yeah. I, I definitely find it hard to get back into that flow, but um, I will come back and sort of at times, revisit what I wrote earlier in the day to feel my way through whether it's on track or not. So um, I know there's some people who swear by the fast first draft, don't look at what you've written, keep going. <laughs> that, that's me. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, by all means, don't look in the rear view mirror, just hit the gas pedal and keep going. Um, but I, I generally do not do that. I have, I have at times tried to be the fast first drafter, but I'm actually more like a blind mountain climber. I feel like I write <laughs> relatively slowly, but fairly cleanly. Um, so my first draft, I mean, every first draft is terrible, but my first draft is, is generally pretty clean um, because I, I kind of am more of a, of a slower methodical writer. So even if I'm not getting more words on the page, sometimes I'll go back and, and noodle revisit what I wrote, maybe outline a bit of what I'm planning to write tomorrow. But that's interesting that you have tried being the, uh, the fast first draft writer, as I yes. say, that's what I do, but it's interesting that you tried that and realized it didn't work for you. And now you find the method that does. And, you know, I say this again and again on this show, you know, I, I will happily tell people what my process is and give them advice, but I always say the most important thing is find what works for you. Yes, that's very true. Um, I did NaNoWriMo a couple of times and that is not a process that works for me. I know some people swear by it and they get a ton of words down during that month, but, um, it's, it's just never worked for me. I've tried it twice and failed both times. <laughs> and on one occasion, I think I wrote 35,000 words, threw it all away and started again. Oh no. Um, yeah, for, for me, fast first drafting isn't doesn't work. It just, you know, and it, but it, it varies by project as well. Um, there's certainly some projects that feel more straightforward and that, um, do you mean like your YA stuff maybe? Is that cause it's shorter? Perhaps? Right. Yeah. Like my, and I, I think, um, part of the reason why I say the fast first drafting, uh, hasn't been my method is that for the past several years, I've been working on this trilogy and it is uh, it's really large with a lot of point of view characters and um, spanning decades of time. And so um, there's a lot of moving parts. It's, it's very hard to write quickly. 
Um, and it's more like stitching a quilt together almost. So I couldn't write it linearly. I couldn't just sit down and start on page one and write through until page 300 and be done, which is what I did with my debut. In, instead, I would do things like take one character's point of view and write several chapters in that character's point of view, write another character and write several chapters in that character's point of view, do the same thing for a third, and then try to figure out how the pieces stitch together. And I had this whole complicated timeline and spreadsheet. So um, it wasn't the sort of story that lent itself well to momentum. Um, I could, I could get momentum, but it wasn't a, a linear sort of momentum. It had to be uh, really pieced together methodically. So that answers, that answers one of my questions that I normally ask people, which is, do you write, you know, linearly or uh, jump around? And it sounds like you sort of, you're, you're a mixture of the two. You do write linearly, but tends to be from one, you know, each character's point of view. Um, but that also, the other question, of course, is do you outline or not? And it sounds like for these books, at least you have to outline. I do. And I, I most certainly do outline. But I think that um, my observation has generally been that uh, that dichotomy we often talk about, pantsers versus plotters, is fairly artificial because eventually everybody who starts on one end of the spectrum realizes they need skills from the other side. So um, I am an outliner, but that outline never stays the same. I, I probably re-outline the thing three or four times, at least in the course of writing it. But I will have an outline just to even give myself the courage to jump into the deep end of the swimming pool, knowing that at some point that'll have to go out the window and I, you know, I'll re-outline, I'll outline backwards, um, I'll free write for a while just to see where it takes me. So it's like having a map that is very poorly drawn. And at some point <laughs> while you're, while you're trekking through the wilderness, you're like, Oh, okay. Well there, that map did not show the cliff over here. So we're going to redraw it. Um, and I, I also, uh, would say, because we we're, t- we're talking about writing method is that I have found every project to require a different method. Maybe if I was the sort of writer that wrote the same sort of book over again. So let's say if I had, you know, a 10 book series, or if I wrote specifically in a genre category um, over and over again, maybe I would come up with a formula or a method that I could replicate over and over again. But that has not been the case for me. Um, I've written in different genres and I've written, um, different age categories and I've written different types of books in terms of like a multi POV book versus a single POV book. Um, And so it does feel like every book that I'm writing, I have to uh, learn how to write over again in a sense. Yeah. That's something you hear from uh, a lot of veteran authors. Um, The notion that you never learn how to write a book. You just learn how to write this book. Right. And what is often um, quite frustrating is the sense that after you finish writing a book and you go to the next project, you're always hit with this, this feeling of like, why isn't this easier now? I just finished this. Right. Stuff. You think, shouldn't I know how to do this? <laughs> I, I should. I just wrote 
this other book. So why can't I write this one? And yeah. um, the only thing that gets me through those times is knowing that I've been here before and I have books on a shelf that prove I can write a book. Yeah. Otherwise, every time I would be like, this is impossible. I don't know how to write. <laughs> no, that's absolutely true. That is something that I've definitely spoken about with other uh, guests on this show. The the experience is what gets you through knowing, as you say, that you've done it, you know, you've done it, you know, you can do it, even though it feels like all hope is lost. Mm -hmm. You know that you've been here before and that if you just keep going, you will get through it eventually. Yes. Uh, And that's, that's vital. One thing you said there was really interesting. The idea that the outline gives you the courage to start, which I think I could say the same about me, but I don't think I've ever, I've never articulated it that way. I really like thinking about it like that because when I talk with pantsers or people who just, you know, whose outline consists of five bullet points or whatever. Um, they always say that part of their issue is that they feel if they outline something, then when they come to write it, uh, they feel as if, as if it's boring, you know, they've already written it. So why would they want to write it again? Um, and I, I, I can sympathize with that, even if I don't quite fully understand it, but I really like the idea that the response being that we'll actually know without the outline, you wouldn't have the courage to begin because you just, you don't know where to begin. And so you've got that. We all need a little bit of fear when we're writing. I'm a big believer that, you know, if we're going to be pushing ourselves, we should all have a little bit of uncertainty about whether or not we can actually pull this off. That's what produces good work. But if there's too much of that, then you're just paralyzed and you can't actually write. Yes. And you have to find your own tolerance for it as well. And I think one reason why I do outline and I need it to have enough courage to get started is because I'm actually not the sort of writer who enjoys drafting. I love revision. So um, I find drafting to be this painful process in which everything I write seems to be getting further away from the beautiful, shiny, perfect vision of the work (laughs) that I have in my mind. And I, I often feel like drafting it is digging a hole and then revision is like actually filling it back up to get it closer to to the the place that I want it to be. Um, And so have you heard that um, saying some writers love to write and some love to have written? Oh, the way I always heard it is that nobody loves writing, but everybody loves having written. (laughs) (laughs) That that certainly describes me. Um, And and I think the, the people who say, oh, I don't need an outline. And in fact, having an outline would suck the joy out of it for me. And uh, I, I can, like you said, I can sympathize, but I can't understand um, that sentiment because uh, to me, having a having something that I can then work with, um, no matter how messy it is, being able to um, improve it is the fun for me. And so it, it doesn't bother me at all to know what's going to happen. Um, what's fun is making it making that product better and, and stripping away all the other random stuff that, that, that's in that first draft and polishing it and, and making it uh, the thing that I wanted. Or making it the best version of that, of whatever's going to happen. Right. It's, as you say, trying to get it closer to that shining ideal in your mind, which of course, you, you know, you never can, it never will be. And that's, that's what keeps us driving forward. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, you and I are of one mind on this. Um, I'm. I feel exactly the same way. My, I, w- I always say that. Um, uh, what's the phrase? That it is easier to rewrite 
anything, even the worst writing in the world, than it is to write it in the first place. Right. It's uh, just, yeah, like you, I'm, I'm, I don't really enjoy drama. I mean, there are times, you know, I'll occasionally write a line or a funny bit or something and I'll go, oh, that's good, that's good. But most of the time it is kind of a bit like pulling teeth. <laughs> but the revision, as you say, that's fine because all you're trying to do then, you've got something, it's done, you've, you've finished it essentially, but now you're just trying to make it better. And that's, I agree, that's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Maybe I misunderstood this, but did you say that you you wrote that first novel and you sent out your first novel? It didn't go like in a drawer or something. Oh, so no, I wrote um, what I would say was a practice novel. Um, that's why I said I had one and a half novels done before uh, I sold my debut. Oh, so the practice so one I, didn't go out. The practice one went into a drawer. Right. <laughs> and then the, the next novel I wrote, I sent out to agents. Right. And queried it for a while without success. And then it was my uh, my two point five or third novel that sold and became my first published book. So that was the next thing I was going to ask you about. Was yeah, because you didn't mention your agent. So how did you go about? Was it just cold querying that you uh, you know sending stuff out to prospective agents? So um, uh, yes, a combination of uh, approaches actually. So I did send out cold query um, to agents, but I also went to a um, writing conference. There's a local one here where agents often come and you can book times to pitch to them. So I had um, booked a number of slots with some agents who were interesting to me and I pitched them. Um, at, at the uh, time, I had this brand new project that I had just finished and was ready to go out with. And the one that I had been querying with limited success for probably about a year at this point. So I wasn't sure which one to pitch. Um, so I started off uh, doing a combination. I pitched one and then I pitched the other. And that second one, the one that, um, that was brand new, got a bunch of interest. So I came out of that conference with four requests for the manuscript, at which point I thought, oh gosh, I'd also better send out uh, queries to the, uh, the agents on my, my query list. Um, so I sent out the manuscript to the agents from the conference who had requested it, as well as some of my top agents on my query list. And um, then when I got my first offer of rep, then I, I was able to ping the next ones and say, and, and speed that process up. So I ended up signing with an agent who I did get off of a query, um, but going to that conference and meeting some agents and being able to pitch to them personally definitely helped the process along. Did it give you more confidence in actually pitching that work as well, even on paper? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, because uh, oftentimes you don't, so much of the work that we do happens remotely. I, 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 how it is, you, you work with your agent or your editor and you can't see them personally and how they're reacting to it. And you wonder, are they reading the book? Do they hate it? Um, <laughs> and having, having uh, that one, one-on-one -on -one interaction with the agents at, a, at that conference was helpful because um, I personally uh, like being able to pitch in person and to sit down with people face to face. Um, and, and also to, to get a sense, you get a little more of a sense of that agent as a person as well. So, um, so that, that ended up being worthwhile. So th that's funny. I, I like meeting people face to face. If I'm going to have a relationship with them, I agree with that. That's, you know, to me, that's very important, but I hate pitching in person. Absolutely hate it. Um, 
And people are often surprised when I tell them that because you know I'm fairly gregarious and I'm kind of good on on stage on panels and stuff. But to me, that is entirely different to sitting down with somebody who isn't who you don't already have a relationship with, somebody you're trying to establish a relationship with, and pitch them, yeah, you know, a screenplay or a book idea or something. In right, I absolutely hate in in a. As you can hear, I'm the sort of person who goes back on my own sentences a lot and it's just, that's how my brain works. And that's not good for pitching. <laughs> it's not, uh, you know, an ideal way to be when you're trying to pitch uh, a supposedly polished idea to somebody who might want to then give you money to produce it uh, or represent you right. to other people who will do the same. So yeah, I find that really difficult. I don't particularly like pitching myself either, but I think it's more just out of um, this discomfort with uh, promoting myself. So I'm Canadian uh, and Asian Canadian to boot. So I feel like humility is is just sort of baked into my background. <laughs> and I being sitting down and being like, let me tell you about how brilliant I am and how brilliant this work is just has always felt very uh, to me. Yeah. Like I've, I've never enjoyed that process. Hello, British person here. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. so, so that, uh, that sort of aspect has never been something I've enjoyed, but uh, back to, you know, the background, um, and how it, it was helpful or not helpful, um, coming from a business background and having had a lot of experience giving presentations and having talk in front of crowds was certainly something that was helpful to me as an author, because I certainly have author friends who, um, who, who really don't like the, the public aspects of being an author of standing up on stage and talking to people and having to sell their book. And that's something that even if I didn't love that aspect, I'm, I'm very comfortable in front of a crowd. And that's not something you would think would be a fundamental skill set for a writer who spends most of their time alone at home in front of their screen. But it absolutely is. Because every time that you um, are out in front of a crowd, you are in your, your, representing your brand. You are pretty much the only person in your small company of one. Um, you are, you know, both the product development and the manufacturing and sales. So you've got to kind of put on your sales and, and marketing hat at times. Um, and that's something I think a lot of uh, authors who, who come from, who don't come from the background um, that I do or, or other backgrounds where you have that experience can struggle. Yeah. And I mean, it is something that comes with experience. I mean, yeah, like I say, I hate doing it, but I, I do it because you have to. Right. And you can get better at it the more you do it. One of the things that I wish I had paid more attention to when I started out, and I say this now so that listeners can sort of, you know, benefit from my own uh, hard won experience, is to practice on somebody who whose opinion you trust but who isn't actually sort of, you know, somebody that you're trying to sell to. Right. Because I I can't even tell you the number of times that I have got a minute into a pitch and realized, oh, this is either a bad pitch or actually I don't believe in this project myself as much as I thought I did. Um, because when it's on paper, I don't know, I think I just find, I think that's easier to fake or it's easier to fool yourself. And right. But when you're, as you say, in front of people doing it live, uh, you know, as if you were doing yeah, a sort of business presentation, you, all those flaws <laughs> are absolutely exposed. You can't escape them. And so i now I find that a really valuable part of the process. I agree. And it's also the reason I don't really talk about my projects 
that are still in the early stages. Yeah. So I, I certainly know some people who, um, as soon as they have an idea, they're eager to talk about it. But I hold, I hold my cards pretty close to the chest when I'm germinating a project. And the reason for that is because as soon as I start talking about it, it sounds really foolish and stupid. And so then I'll, I'll lose, I'll start second guessing myself. Yep. Um, so I, I'll often not, you'll know that I'm serious about an idea when I don't talk about it. <laughs> because I don't want any of the feeling that comes from trying to express it to leak into my brain before I have enough on paper that it feels real. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, I don't know, maybe you feel the same way, but the way I feel is that like, I, I have no problem with people criticizing the work, but I want them to criticize the work, not my ham-fisted attempts at describing the work to them right. or a work in progress. I, you know, I want to finish the work, present the work to them, and then sure, if you don't like it, well, fine, have at it. But at least you've experienced the work as I wanted it to be experienced. Yes. And um, certainly now that I'm in a position where I have a choice to try to sell a project as a full manuscript or on proposal, um, that is a calculation that goes on in my mind because there's certainly pros and cons either way. But mm. part of me want, doesn't want to sell the idea before I've written it. Um, and I, and so there's the, okay, I don't, I would rather be left alone with it and not have someone breathing down my neck and, and potentially, you know, criticizing the idea before I've done enough on it to feel good about it versus um you know there's there's certainly authors who will sit down with their editor and be like so i'm thinking of this type of idea and their editor's like great here's a contract <laughs> and <laughs> that i think would scare the bejesus out of me <laughs> <laughs> no I, I'm, I'm exactly the same yeah i can't i mean sometimes you have to sell on proposal on pitch but uh, i much prefer to just write and then go okay here's the thing do you want to buy it <laughs> right <laughs> Another thing, just going back again to sort of your, you know, your origin, as it were, you mentioned that you had that feeling of, if not now, then when? Um, right. Can I, without meaning to get too personal, can I ask how old you were at that point? So I was, when I made that decision, I was 32. Um, and my first book was published when I was 36. Right, right. Because I had, I was, I had exactly the same kind of feeling myself when I left my corporate job and, and, went freelance myself, but I was just coming up to my 30th. Mm -hmm. um, but I had exactly that same feeling of, if I don't at least try this, you know, it may fail, but if I don't at least try, I will kind of resent the fact that I didn't try, Yes, you know, uh, forever. And so, yeah, I, I think there comes a point for all of us, doesn't there, where you kind of think, okay, well, I've just got to, I've got to at least have an attempt at this so that I'm not then kicking myself in 10 years time. Right. Yeah, I definitely felt that way. So this, let's talk just a little bit more about the book. So you started out in, your YAs were sci-fi. Yes. And then the, but then the Jade City books are, I mean, they're SFF, but they're on the F side. <laughs> right. <laughs> they yes. are more, but they're not straight fantasy, but they're more fantasy than sci-fi. Yes. Was that a deliberate shift or did that just come about because you had the idea and you wanted to tell this story? It was just because it was the idea. So um, I definitely go uh, back and forth between science fiction and fantasy um, ideas, uh, and I don't treat them any differently. 
Um, and I probably would say actually a majority of my ideas are probably science fiction. Um, but, uh, this particular one lent itself. It was, it just came into my mind. Um, actually the world and the magic system, um, the premise of it came into my mind. So, so it started out as a world building thing then rather than a character or even story per se. Yes. So every idea comes to me a little bit differently. Um, sometimes it's the character that comes to me first, which was the case for um, my young adult science fiction duology, that the character came to me first. Um, sometimes it's the pl- a, a particular piece of plot or a, a, a story twist, um, which was the case with my debut novel. And in the case of the Greenbone Saga, my adult fantasy series, it was the world that came to me first. And I had no characters and no plot and had to figure uh, those out afterwards. So um, that that gets back to what we were saying earlier, that in many ways you're, you're learning to write each book over again. And part of the reason for that is because in many ways you s- I've discovered the kernel or starting point for each story to be different. Um, and uh, the, the Greenbow Saga in particular, um, I knew from the start that it was going to be a family saga and it was going to have a cast of characters. And I, uh, I had this, this aesthetic vision of what it would f- look like and feel like, what the tone of the novels was. Um, and so in order to create that, I, I then went about developing each of the characters so that I could um, highlight particular relationships between them to create the family saga feel for the novels. Interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I know that. I haven't had that too often, but I have had that with a couple of my works as well. Yeah, where you just, as you say, an, an aesthetic sense. That happened to me with The Fuse, which is a sci-fi mm-hmm. murder mm-hmm. mystery series I did, um, where, yeah, I just kind of had this idea of run-down cop, run-down space station with, like, you know, homicide cops right. understaffed trying to get their job done kind of thing. I had no characters or story at that point, but just that, as you say, that aesthetic idea. That's a really good yes. way of putting it. Um, so what was the, I mean, obviously it's a big process and I, I'm not going to ask you to walk us through it in detail, but how do you then sit down once you've got that, okay, this is the world I'm going to build. I'm going to put some kind of story and some kind of characters into this world. What's the, the literal process for you? Do you just sit down with a notebook or do you want, you know, go on long walks or do you sit down and draw up spreadsheets or what? So this is a good question because I'm going through it right now. I've oh, okay. <laughs> scripted into my editor and I'm in the process of building up uh, the idea for the next book I'm going to write. So I'm in the thick of it as we speak. Oh, and, and this is, this is an entirely, this is unrelated. This is an, I yeah, an entirely yeah, yeah. new project. Uh, and I have um, a, a general sense of the story, but it, and it's, and it's very skeletal right now. So what I'm doing at the moment is a combination of a few things. One is reading other books in that um, subgenre category that kind of have, uh, that might be good um, comparisons or inspiration for what I'm trying to do. So the, it's, a, it's a dystopian science fiction thriller that I'm working on right now. So I've got a stack of other dystopian science fiction thrillers that I'm reading to kind of put my brain in that space. Um, the other thing I'm doing is research. So I, I have 
a whole list of things that I know are going to go into this story in this world that I need to understand better. So I've gathered together a bunch of other nonfiction books and I've been, you know, gathering together resources on the internet and making a list of people that I need to talk to. Um, you know, I have, uh, I have on my list, a neuroscience friend of mine and, uh, um, a weapons expert. And so I've, I've, got the research side going. And then there is the actual brainstorming outlining process. So I've started a file in Scrivener and I've created a bunch of folders, characters, world, plot musings. And I will sit and start as I'm, as I think of things and start to flesh them out, I will free write things into those folders. Um, I might pull images and, and drop them into my files so I'm um, multitasking the sort of immersing myself in in comparable fiction and putting myself into like the right mode for that that type of story and research and project development, if you will. And you're using Scrivener as effectively as your notebook. Uh, for the most part, yes. But I also have a physical notebook that um i find it easier to keep it with me f- when i'm um when i'm away from my laptop and wandering around or reading another book and something strikes me and uh, and i'll jot it into my my physical notebook as well so I'll, I'll and i'll set myself a certain amount of time so i'll be like okay for the next 2 weeks i'm i'm going to be working on researching these few topics and i want to try and get um, character profile done for both of the main characters this coming week and hopefully get like a better I have a very skeletal outline but I want to flesh that out and have a more beat by beat version of it by the end of next week so that that's sort of what I'm doing now and I I don't rush it but I also um, give myself a a start date so I'll say okay well I'm, and most of the time I I give myself six to six odd weeks, six to eight weeks, depending on sort of the size and scope of the project before I'm like, okay, now you have to sit down and start writing. So I, (laughs) (laughs) because it's very easy to be like, I could do more research. Oh yes. Oh yes. (laughs) There's always the temptation to be like, I'm still, I'm still gathering things. I'm still researching. But at some point you realize, no, you have, you do have enough. You have, you, you need the amount that you need to get started um, is, is probably less than you think and you can always do more along the way so um it it it's helpful for me to have in my mind like a a drop dead date of like okay now you have to put your fingers on the keyboard and start writing yeah i think research is one of those areas where that saying perfect is the enemy of good absolutely applies because as you say you could very easily fall down the rabbit hole and just constantly think oh no but i haven't done quite enough research i'm not quite ready and yeah you you never if you take that attitude you never will but you have to at some point as you say and i think it's especially dangerous for um, science fiction and fantasy writers because the same thing applies to world building yes oh you god can, yes you could certainly world build yes and timelines <laughs> <laughs> and you'll have this wonderful world with with no manuscript <laughs> yes i have an entire 2000 year history but uh, but no story right um, Actually, you mentioned that you had timelines. Do you use timeline software, or do you just uh, sketch it all out? Uh, it, within, you mean the the timeline in the story world? Yeah, 
Yes. So I use um, this program called Eon Timeline. Yes, that's what I use. Oh, it's great. <laughs> and it's it's been super helpful for me because I have a whole cast of characters and it helps me catch every little thing um, because there's there's times when I've been like, oh yeah, this scene, I moved it, but now it turns out that those kids can't have that conversation because they're only eight months old or what, what have you. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it is great, Aeon. I, it grew out, actually, of uh, a thread, several threads, on the Scrivener user forums way back in the day. I was a beta tester of uh, oh, wow. Aeon, yeah, because I was on those forums many, many years ago. Um, and yeah, I've used it ever since. It's absolutely, I love it. Absolutely oh, brilliant. It, it, indispensable. I have it open pretty much all the time. Yeah. Well, okay, so one other thing that I just want to ask you about, and this may seem like an odd question at first, but I am going somewhere with it, is I know that you're a very accomplished martial artist. Uh, and a Shotokan karate, I believe, is what you practice. Is that right? So I started out in Shotokan karate in my teens, and I trained in that and, and got a second-degree black belt. And then um, when I moved to my current uh, city, I couldn't find a Shotokan place um, that was near me and, and that, that gelled with me. So I, um, started training in traditional Kung Fu. So that's what I've been doing oh, right. since then. Cool. Um, I trained in, uh, only for a couple of years in Wado Ryu karate. Oh, cool. Uh, which is like pretty much the diametric opposite of Shotokan. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I had to give it up for injury after a couple of years. But then I, what I did as a result of the injury was I then began to practice Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. which I practiced for a long time and mm-hmm. I, I don't attend classes anymore, but I do still, you know, try to sort of keep up with it. And, and this is where I'm going with this question is I have found over the years that as Tai Chi, especially karate to an extent, but the, the practice of Tai Chi especially has really both directly and indirectly informed the way I write and in even some of what I write. And I'm just wondering, and, and I'm nowhere near as accomplished a martial artist as you by the sounds of it. So I'm just wondering, has it had any influence on your, you know, the way you go about your work? Well, certainly has had an impact on the work itself uh, because everything that I have written um, has been quite action heavy. Um, and a number of my novels have martial arts very prominently as part of the story. Um, the Greenbone Saga, as I as I mentioned, is a gangster family epic with magic and kung fu. So it, martial <laughs> arts is most definitely part of that and inspired um, not just by my own experience as a martial artist, but my love of martial arts films um, and the wuxia genre and all that. So um, so it's most definitely had an impact on on what I want to write about and. Um, it has made it so that writing action scenes is something that's that's uh, a real a, a very fun part of the writing process for me um, because it's, it's 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 almost like the candy of the of the story for me. I can <laughs> write a scene where I know there's a lot of tense political conflict and interpersonal uh, you know challenges going on and and. And I can get through that because I'll be like, okay, but the next scene, there's a fight scene. So, um, so I, I really enjoy, uh, writing the, the action parts of, uh, my novels and, um, on a more sort of personal process, um, standpoint, there's the fact that, uh, martial arts is, um, 
it's similar to writing in that uh, there's this sort of quest for perfection that can never be. It's yes. they're both they're both very much about the discipline and practice of the art as opposed to what you can accomplish, like any one particular accomplishment. So there, it's it's the never ending journey um, when it comes to both writing and martial arts. And at the at the same time, they're a complement because um, martial arts has has always been a way for me to um, to to balance out the very uh, very intellectually intense sitting in front of a computer time with now I can like expel this energy by hitting punching bats or <laughs> something that will like be very yeah. physical and tangible and in the moment where you have to be kind of mindful about what's going on right now, lest you get punched in the face so, as opposed to, you know, writing, which is uh, spending all this time in a fictional world with other characters uh, and, and not in the yeah, real the, world. There is no staring out the window when you're sparring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I agree completely. Um, th- that's what I found with Tai Chi is especially is that, yeah, there's, it's impossible to be perfect. And uh, the beauty I find is that, you know, you're, you don't need an instructor to tell you when you're doing it wrong because deep right. down you know yourself. Right. And that's the same in writing, I think is, you know, we are, I think writers pretty good at fooling ourselves to an extent. I think we have to be, but at the same time, we know really you know when we've yeah. written something that isn't quite good enough and we know we could do better you know we are aware of it it's uh we can't fool ourselves that much i don't think and every once in a while there are those transcendent moments where you sit back and you're like oh yeah that's a good line or you know there's or or a moment when you're in your practice of martial arts where you're like oh yeah no that that felt right um and it makes the the other 90 percent of struggle <laughs> worth it when you when you hit those moments and you're like oh that was that was good that was wow i'm actually impressed with myself doesn't happen often but when it does happen it's great they are few and far between (laughs) yes right (laughs) (laughs) all right let's let's start to close this out then so uh tell me what parts do you really enjoy no, actually, no, because you've already you've already said that you enjoy the action scene. So let's switch to the other my other standard set, which is what do you think you're pretty good at as a writer? Mm. <laughs> yes, no, not as a martial artist. I'm sure you're. I'm sure if you're, if you're second degree Dan, uh, I'm sure you're very good at many things as a martial artist. No, this is just the writing. <laughs> um, yeah, gosh, I I think uh, the you know, oftentimes the things that you are good at are the things that you enjoy the most, right? And, and so I. I think um, what for me is, I would say, like my my brand, if you will, as a writer is um, smart action. It, it's it's stories that have this forward narrative momentum are you know are are heavy on um, on excitement and thrills, but have this ha- have really robust world building and characters, and I want readers to really think about underlying issues of those stories. So um, one thing I've said before is I, I don't tend to write heroes and villains. Um, I tend to write stories in which uh, I could potentially write the entire story over again from the point of view of the antagonist and um, make you sympathize with them as well. And 
for me, that's about writing fantasy and science fiction worlds that feel very real and nuanced. So I'm, I'm a bit of a world building junkie. I want those worlds to feel like ones in which you could get on a plane and you could land in that place and walk down the streets and the characters feel like they're real people. Um, you know, you could, you could picture the, the shops and the cars and so on. So, um, that's what I think my natural strengths are. All right. Well then, so what do you wish you were better at? Uh, <laughs> the perennial question. So, um, I think, you know, the, the thing that I struggle with the most is probably romance and dialogue. Um, so I, I've always, uh, been, <laughs> I've, I often, often hit scenes where it's like, oh gosh, I'm trying to get these characters to have a slow burn romance. And it's, it's, <laughs> I always find those really difficult. Um, the ones that are very touchy feely because I'm, I'm a very concrete writer and um and kind of messing around with the with the like development of the character's emotions and hitting those emotional beats like spot on are the ones that i find the most effortful that's fascinating because so many uh writers that i've had on here say that the that they think dialogue is their best you know trait and it's what they if they could just write nothing but dialogue they'd be happy as uh, as a pig in a poke all day so you we should team you up with lauren bucus between the two of you <laughs> <laughs> you'd write masterpieces <laughs> um all right so finally then what is uh the last book you you read where the writing itself really impressed you and why oh gosh well i just recently read um actually re- reread um the Calculating Star, the Lady Astronaut series by Mary oh, yes. Robinette Cole. Yeah, the Calculating Stars, um, Faded Sky, uh, and the Relentless Moon. That's the one that jumped to mind for me right away because um, Mary Robinette is really good at um, telling very optimistic, human, emotional stories without. Uh, skimping on the science a single iota so is it's both very nerdy and filled with with science and astronauts and math but also very relatable human likable characters Uh, and being able to accomplish that is 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 really great just it really it was a wonderful read at this time in particular when everything (laughs) seems very there's lots of reasons to be pessimistic and it's rather gloomy every time you open, you know, the internet. Um, but reading those books has a way of kind of re, uh, just reinvigorating your optimism and humanity, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, they really are wonderful. I, I'll second that. Absolutely. Um, and, and I, I, I'm one of those t- typical writers who is absolutely, I'm allergic to mathematics and yet, there is something about those books that they, they're, they're so human as well as all the science. Right. That, uh, yeah, they're just wonderful. Fonda, where can people find you online? My website is uh, fondalee.com. Very straightforward and, and easy to find. Um, I'm, I can be found on Twitter at Fonda J. Lee. And what work of yours would you recommend our listeners check out if they haven't read you before? 
Oh gosh. Um, well, it, it really depends if they if they have any particular preference for fantasy or science fiction um, or YA or adult. But um, probably my my best known series at this point is the Greenbone Saga, uh, and Jade City would be the book to start with. All right, Fonda. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Anthony. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes before they're published, uh, can take part in Q&A episodes and more. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge today. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter, and that's also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. And I'll see you next time. <laughs> you're gonna have to cut out you're gonna have to yeah. cut out my dog yelling okay. barking in the background because I had this moment of uh oh when the um Does somebody come home? <laughs> yes, no actually the the mailman showed up. Oh. <laughs>